welcome to the Board Game Gambit podcast. Today's episode number 17. And today we are starting a new kind of podcast, the Designer Series, where we are going to talk about a designer that we have played a few games of and are interested to discuss more at length. So today, our first designer is going to be Eric Lang. Joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited for this because when we started discussing topics for the podcast, one of the things that we wanted to do was to focus on certain designers. And at the very beginning, in one of the episodes that we uh, got rid of, uh, the idea was to pair up games and eliminate them. And I think one of the ones we tried to do it with was Eric Lang. And so it has been obviously a big presence on our podcast and I'm excited to do this. So as you were saying, we are trying a new thing. So for this episode, especially because we have so much to talk about, we will go straight up with the topic for today. So we will leave the what have we played for for next week and not go into any in-depth review because the man has a lot that he has done yes he has quite the repertoire it's also not on purpose but very on topic eric has just announced that he's leaving culminis or not simon after a few years as their creative director i think three and is on to new and exciting things. I'm very curious to see what he did. I must say that I think the years at um, Simon, much like his years at Fantasy Flight in the past, have not stifled his creativity or anything like that, as you hear from time to time about people working exclusively with one company. And actually, he has produced some of his best games here and at Fantasy Flight. So I'm Curious to see if he will land at another very structured position for a different company or if he's going to try and be more fiduty where every game he produces is is with a different company. Yeah, I'm not sure, but we are very excited to talk about all of his different games that he has brought into existence. So where would you like to start? Because there are so, so many to get to. So I was thinking that specifically because there are so many going into a chronological order would probably be the easiest way. Also, because I think that for people listening, some of the stuff he did is not only not particularly popular, sometimes even straight up unpopular, but (laughs) even just unknown and sometimes different from what we know. Um, so his first game that I could find him credited for, and again, uh, that's all we have to go by, is a game called Mystic Domination from 2000, which is weirdly spelled is M-Y-S-T-I-C-K Domination. And I was browsing around. One of the reviews makes the claim that it's the first expandable card game, like the first LCG meaning a game with no random pack distribution. This said, I read through some of the cards. I look at some of the reviews. It's very hard for me to understand what it is. It's a card game where you're trying to fight someone else. 
nothing particularly new. If you want to look at the images, it's, in my opinion, very uninspiring, but he must have done something right in this game. Um, not only because it's Eric Lang, but also because that apparently landed him a job at Fantasy Flight a couple of years later to co-design with Christian Peterson, the former president and founder of FFG, to design the collectible card game for Game of Thrones, which I think that's where his career actually started in the modern time. Um, I have not played that version of the card game. I don't think you have either. No. But from there, he went on, I think, that was the beginning of one of the main characteristics of Eric, which is he works on intellectual properties a lot. And he does so significantly well, I think. So the collectible card game for A Game of Thrones was obviously before the the TV show, which I think is 2010 or 2012, something like that. It was based on the books. I haven't played that. I haven't played the next version. I only played the second edition, which came out way later in 2015. But I think the concept is the same. It was a two-player game um, where, much like Magic the Gathering, you are trying to attack the other player, but the goal is not to kill the other player, is to collect uh, power and all of that. And it's one of those games, obviously, where every card has different effects, that they combo and there are events, and we will, won't go into detail of that. But I would be curious if already in 2002, I have no idea, the feature of this card game, which I don't think you would like in general, but it's a card game that is not mainly built for two-player. It's a game oh. where you are supposed to be playing it with, with four and there are roles and one is the Hand of the King and all of that. And so while the game then lived through the two-player game and because it's way more conducive to tournaments and things like that, I think that you can find that idea of high interaction that then went on to become one of Lang's staples to be born there. Mystic mm -hmm. Domination, from what I can see, seems a very straightforward magic-like I play against you, while the collectible card game for Game of Thrones was trying to bring that you have to keep an eye on everyone. So even if it's obviously not an era control game, it has something like that. Yeah. Then he went on to 2003, still as a fantasy flight person, basically. Uh, fantasy flight, particularly in that period, was just having a lot of people working on their designs. And for example, he is the designer for Frenzy, which I know nothing about, but he's credited as Eric Lang, the lead designer of a Game of Thrones card game and Dragon Ball Z. So I don't, I have no way to know whether these were his own ideas and designs or whether he was working on stuff that Fantasy Flight was churning out. So take a look at Frenzy if you can, Nathan. It's not very pretty. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. 
No, me neither. But it says it's a real-time skirmish. Which seems to have only numbered cards. Right. (laughs) So, again, it seems one of those things that simply live by nice art. It has uh, fireball cards and little sword cards. So it has some things, maybe? I don't know. It would be interesting to know. Obviously, at this point, even trying these these games would be very different, be difficult because you would have to try and find someone who owns them. And is I don't think it's it's very common to have someone who still owns this or knows how to play it. But um, and in the same year, in still in two thousand three, it did Dragon Ball Z, uh, which has a longer title. Was Dragon Ball Z a big thing in the U.S. as well? Yes. Again, I didn't know at the time I was still living in Italy, but the idea is still fighting another player with cards, I suppose. No, actually, it has a board. It does have a board. And little standees. Yeah, little standees and the grid. The board is a grid with weird tokens, and you play (laughs) cards that say, power up! So very, very appropriate to the theme, I guess. Yeah. this is not even a game that I want to ever try. No, I'm, I'm all set. It, it has dice, D6s to try and hit. It has long power and health tracks. You're probably trying to become a Super Saiyan or whatever it is. It looks like he also released a very similar game in 2002 of also Dragon Ball Z. Oh, so maybe this is an expansion? No. No, it looks like its own standalone. And it was working again with Daryl Hardy, who's another one of those very prolific, credited on a bunch of of Fantasy Flight productions in that period uh, and later. And I have the impression, but obviously cannot substantiate it in any way, shape, or form, that this was mainly Daryl Hardy's project and Eric was involved as in the development in that cooperative fantasy flight way um, because Dar Hardy worked on a bunch of expansions and other things for Dragon Ball Z, which Eric did not. So, um, but again, I don't know. Anyhow, um, if you can get a look at the game, you will probably understand why we are moving on. <laughs> in 2004, he released with Kevin Wilson, who's now an independent designer and was for a longer time a developer at FFG, Senator, which is actually the first game that I actually played on this list. Senator is a game, it's not very thematic. Again, we are still very far from what Lang became famous for, but is it has this veneer of Roman Republic, but it's basically an auction game where you have very limited resources, very limited cards, and you lose part of the cards that you play. I don't remember. I own it, but I reacquired it after a long time, so I would have to play it again. I remember liking it. I remember a lot of people not liking it. Um, But it has, again, it was trying to do something new. There were auctions where you could suddenly interrupt an auction with an assassin. There were tokens that you were collecting but they were at risk and you had to win certain auction to secure them so it was an auction game where things could 
after you had won the auction being taken away um, from you often. And so I would be very curious to know what space that occupied in his development, because it seems another step where he decided that interaction was very important, mm -hmm. even beside traditional, I mean, auctions are obviously interactive, but they're interactive in a very passive way. Either I get something or you get it or whoever pays more. While here, both in the action, will he play the assassin on my senators that I'm using to to bid? or And in the aftermath, like when you collected a certain token, you could keep it for yourself or give it to someone else because some tokens would cancel each other. So mm -hmm. I could win an auction simply to make you lose stuff, which again feels more Eric Lange than just an auction game. Mm -hmm. It seems like it is sort of trying to move closer to what we know of his modern games, where it's definitely more of the player interaction, sometimes in a previously unexplored way. Yeah, and for me, it's also... First, I, I really would like to, to try it again and play it with you. I think you would like it because it's, a, in my opinion, a solid little Euro. But also, it's one of those Fantasy Flight silver line boxes where there are decent components, not going to win any prize, especially the art on the cards is not great, but it has sturdy cardboard components. It goes beyond simply, okay, let's slap some numbers on the cards and put out this pack. And so his collaboration with Fantasy Flight was was growing. What's next? 2005, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation. Do you know anything about this? I do not. Let's go see. <laughs> oh, there is a Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation from 2002, which is by Rhino Nizia. So it's probably just credited as, I suspect this might be a redesign of the older oh yeah so it's simply again he was working at fantasy flight fantasy flight put out a new edition of rhino nizia famous lord of the rings the confrontation and this was probably just along for the ride but this way we have a game for each year <laughs> yes 2006 is dilbert the board game wait just a second rhino nizia is not someone that i would ever think to pair lang with and I think that's basically not what happened. I don't know if they actually work together. I would be very curious. This is, again, one that I would like to ask. It sounds fun. Well, yeah. I mean, I haven't played it, but um, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation has a great reputation. It was a very popular game when it came out. It's basically Stratego Lord of the Rings, I think. Okay. Oh, yeah. It kind of looks like you're like they're hidden people. And yeah. So, again, it's very hard to know what was not having it played it, what was already there, what Eric specifically contributed, if if he did, or whether he simply revised some interaction of the characters and, and the development. Um, I don't think we're going to play it anytime soon. Well, maybe you, because Brian might have it, probably. <laughs> um, no, because if you were to track it down, it's now $120 on Amazon. I think more because of scarcity than because of actual sought-after value. Sure. 
This looks like his first like solid rated game though. Uh yes. Above I a seven. That is that is absolutely true, and I don't know what the status of the collectible card game, A Game of Thrones, was. It is actually ranked better than the original. So whatever they did was not bad, because it has a slightly higher ranking and rating than Nietzsche's first one. Oh, what's new? New and larger game board, larger sculpted plastic stands, and completely new artwork and uh, graphic design. Okay, this is not... Uh, oh, the game includes 18 entirely new characters in addition to the classic characters found in the original. So again, as we imagine, they develop new rules, new interactions, probably without changing the base of the game, which is interesting. It's So he was probably working as a developer at the time, beside being a designer. Yeah. Okay, so sorry to interrupt, but 2006, you said Dilbert, the board game, which is Dilbert is a comic strip. I love it. My favorite is uh, life gives you only lemon, make a lemonade. I'm allergic to lemons. Well, as they say, if life gives you lemon, blow up and die. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) But this said, the game looks, I mean. Sad? But is one of those... First of all, it's noticeably not by Fantasy Flight, even if he was working with them at the time or collaborating with them. It's by Hyperion Games, which I don't know, seems definitely on the use the lines from the, the comic rather than actually building up a good game. Yeah. I have no idea, not particular interest in trying to understand how this work. The art is Dilbert. Yes, I like that the mechanisms are N-A. <laughs> oh, yeah. The listed mechanisms. Yeah. It's a game that you play. Yeah, it, the characters have things like apathy. Oh, it even has a board. I hadn't realized I was only looking at the cards. It has a board and a lot of people apparently moving around an office space. Oh, there's a picture. It says, a bad roll when you enter marketing means you have to sit under the table until your next turn. And it says, no, I'm not kidding. And it's a picture of someone under a table. Okay, so again, <laughs> I don't think this so will solid, be... Solid gameplay. And and certainly what he considers the pinnacle of his design. I mean, we should just call it now. This is the top Eric Lane game of all time. So, yeah, thank you for being with us. Uh, Nathan and I have <laughs> agreed on the top game. As I was saying at the beginning, I would like to explore some of his older designs. Even Frenzy, I could give it a, a try if anyone had it. This looks like... Nope. Yeah, no, that one I have no interest and will not... Even if Brian has it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> will not be making its way to the table. <laughs> Also, because I guess it doesn't have rules that you can explain like in two minutes, oh, play this card and be done with it. Because characters have three different values and there is a very busy board and there are tokens. So you probably still have to go through some explanation to then play something that is clearly not meant to be a particularly gaming experience. 2007 was Midgard. And I'm interested in this game. It looks very blood ragey, like a predecessor to blood rage. Basically, it looks like it is an area control. It actually, I think they even use some of the same fonts 
as in Blood Rage, looking at the board. The setting is exactly the same, right? Yeah. Um, some regions will suffer Ragnarok. And when Blood Rage came out, actually, I remember people saying, oh, before it came out, sorry, when it was announced, it's only a reskin uh, with miniature, basically, of Midgard, which was considered a middle-of-the-way game. Oh, it technically says that it is re-implemented by Blood Rage. So it's not, it's no secret there that they are related. Yeah. Related. Yeah. And again, I would be curious to play it. I had the chance to play it way before Blood Rage was a thing. And we looked at the rules, look at the board, and looked like just another different powers area control game. Mm-hmm. It had drafts, uh, drafting of cards, but the cards seemed way more basic, less comboy than Blood Rage. Um, for example, I'm seeing that you use cards to do things. So if you look at the images, the cards allow you to fight or move or invade. So everything that you do in Blood Rage as actions at will, so with complete freedom for players, you had to draft. So if you wanted to invade the province, you had to draft that card. And so I guess, although this second part is speculation, that vice versa, it had little to nothing of the special powers. Because if you have to use cards to add Vikings to the board and to move them, etc., and so I think that while I can see the theme and the, the inspiration, this seems like a very uninspiring draft. You have to draft to simply be able to do things that in most games you just do, which is not necessarily bad. I think that introducing limits to what you can do can stimulate strategy and all of that. But compared to what I know of Blood Rage, this seems like a way more boring draft. Yeah. Also, the player pieces are very sad. So they're just pawns, and then one larger pawn. It really needed that Simon touch, I think. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right, and it goes beyond the obvious, but very relevant look that just looks like pawns on a board but also that means that we know for sure that there are no special units because how would you distinguish among all of your pawns so there are no monsters no obviously mystics and all of that and so i'm looking at the board the board looks interesting yeah it has three rounds and there is a ragnarok and there are Vikings in Valhalla. You get points for Vikings that are already in Valhalla. Again, this, I won't seek it out. It's not like I'm dying to play, but it's not one I would refuse to play. Yeah, I would definitely play this. Yeah. Also, similar feeling. Like, I wouldn't specifically be like, we have to play Midgard. <laughs> but um, I would definitely... I would definitely play it if someone had it. Yeah, I, I wonder how long it is. If this, it says 60 minutes playing time. So maybe that that's something that I could, like if the, this had been a three hour game, I would rather play Blood Rage twice. And interestingly enough, oh, this, this is amazing. Uh, there is 
if I don't know if you can find it browsing through the images for the game, there is a very young and very professionally dressed Eric Lang demoing the game. And oh, yeah, I, I, like, I like how he is now, for those who haven't seen Eric Lang, Google for a picture is a very flamboyant, very confident, very friendly, very spontaneous character. He is he's great at conventions. Vice versa, in this image, it looks like, oh, I am dressed for work and I am very seriously going through uh, the presentation of this, of my game. And obviously part of it comes with success. I like to imagine also him growing into his confidence as the designer and and growing also in his own true personality. Okay, so 2008, I think we are still far from the games that you and I personally particularly like of his. Yes. But this also seems to be when things start picking up for him. Game of Thrones card game becomes an LCG, which obviously is not particularly important on the design. I don't know if rules change significantly, but LCGs will go on to become a major thing for Fantasy Flight. And not only is obviously involved in the redesign of that, but also Call of Cthulhu, the card game, is another LCG. And in the same year... Um, so these two games, uh, um, Game of Thrones, we talked a little bit about before. It has the, the main interesting mechanic to me is that contrary to Magic, for example, where you only have the attack, it goes into the opposite direction. It's a little bloated, but you have three different categories of attack. You can attack on like violence, basically a standard I attack you, but you can do influence attack and intrigue attack. And if I do an intrigue attack and you cannot defend it, you lose cards from your hand. And if I do um, a power attack, I'm trying to get points. And if I'm doing a physical attack, I'm trying to take out the, the units that you use to defend in all these three things. And different characters can defend on one or the other and attack on one or the other. So it is the one thing that I really like about all of Fantasy Flight car games, even the ones that I don't like as games, is that they really try to do something different from Magic. Whether it worked or not, it depends on the single game. But they didn't do, oh, let's basically play Magic the Gathering and slap on top that instead of having Force of Nature, you have Sandal Clagain or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. They really try to do different things. Um, a Game of Thrones card game I personally don't play it. Um, some of my friends really did, but it's a very solid game. Call of Cthulhu, the card game, was a weird game. So a game that, for me, it failed. Clearly it didn't. It went on to have a bunch of um, expansions, but failed for the right reasons. So... <laughs> Explain. Explain. Yeah. So... In this game, it's a Call of Cthulhu, so there are monsters and cultists, etc., but you are not, again, it's not like you play the Cthulhu cultist and I play the brave investigators and I'm trying to smash you with, with my weapons. I played it when it came out, so a long time ago. So you you and anyone listening will have to forgive me for, for my muddy recollection. But there are stories, so you are competing in... Um, finding clues about stories and unlocking locations. So you are 
playing on different suits or colors, whatever, but thematically, he spends a lot of time making sure that you don't have the feeling of, okay, I called them something different, but again, I'm simply trying to take out your creatures and take down your, I don't know, call it sanity points rather than life points, right? So Mm. um, to me, that felt a little abstract. I remember not getting too much into, okay, so I'm collecting clues to resolve the story. But at the same time, probably I would have played it more easily if that being simply, oh, you're, you are you have Cthulhu, I have different monsters, and we play our monsters and we attack each other. But it would have been a, a much less interesting game. Um, it was also, it was presented to me as a collectible card game. I was way before I got into board games. So the idea of a game that we had expansions and things like that basically was I was already, I don't know if I was still playing some Magic uh, the Gathering. My friends certainly were. So I felt like, well, if I need to get into a game, I'd rather get into Magic again. And so that fell off the wayside. But there are some things that are really interesting. The, um, the interest for theme, again, not simply setting for, I have this IP, I will slap it on a standard car game. And the trying to not be scared about adding mechanics to get to team, if if that makes any sense. Yeah, and so it looks like this was one of the beginnings of Fantasy Flight's living card games. Yep. So um, that was where they sent you uh, different little expansions, which you got to experience with the Star Wars game. Yes, he was working with Nate French. For the longest time, he was head of LCG development at Fantasy Flight, which I think is, this is where the transition comes and Eric starts becoming, I have the impression, obviously, I cannot know it for sure, but starts (laughs) becoming not simply one of the people working at Fantasy Flight, but a reliable designer who's mostly employed by Fantasy Flight but that is clearly a designer in his own right. And sure, he keeps collaborating with a lot of people, but there is no doubt that this is not uh, like for Lord of the Ring, the confrontation, oh, you're working here, we're putting out the new edition of this game, why don't you help with the development of cards? But that is involving this new project, as you were saying, something they were trying to do something different. They did certainly have a great success. He also did Mutant Chronicles, the miniature game, of which I know nothing. So, Is that his first miniature game? It must I be. assume, unless the Dilbert game has miniatures. Um, no. no. <laughs> this is really, is not even a board game in a classical sense. It's a skirmish miniature game fighting thing. I, I know nothing about it. It's different. Okay. It was discontinued after less than a year. Not a great success, I guess. It was published by Fantasy Flight. It's um, actually an IP that I used to like, but I know nothing else. Another one in 2008 was Fantasia. A game with a diacritic in the title. This is published by Hyperion Games, where the same people he he published that Dilbert game with. (laughs) Wait, but this one actually has mechanisms listed. Yeah. Role-playing variable player powers. It's about 
trying to become a medieval knight. Oh, it's not in English. I feel in the f- camp of let's move on, but I don't know if yeah. you have anything no, to add yeah. about this. No, no. Uh, let's keep going. And the one thing that, that boggles my mind is that at this point, he's already working on some of the biggest IPs with one of the biggest companies around because he has worked on a Game of Thrones and he has worked on Lord of the Rings and he has worked on Call of Cthulhu with Fantasy Flight and then he goes off to to this little thing which shows the curiosity, right? Um, For example, I like other designers as much uh, as I like Eric Lang but they are way more consistent in their stuff which is good because you can rely on that but at the same time a little less explorative, right? Um, for example, I always say that I like um, Stefan Feld because he goes into different mechanisms all the time. But obviously, the difference between the thing that we just looked at and even Midgard, the one that we were looking at before, seems to me way starker than the difference between, I don't know, Castle of Burgundy and another Feld game. Right. If you if you put them next to each other, I would never say clearly these are the same designer. Whereas when you play Feld games, I feel like you're like, okay, this is a Feld game because it has the point salady kind of feel to it. Whereas these are kind of all over the place. Yeah, which is at the same time good and bad, right? It's bad because you cannot basically count on, oh, if I like that, I would probably like this. But at the same time, it's good because it shows that he wants to experiment with a lot of different things. Also, I think that it was good that he did that in his earlier career. I feel like now he's much more consistent with the type of game and the style of game that he produces. But in the beginning, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, his career unfold as these completely different games. Yeah, and I wonder, again, I would like to ask him at some point whether these were, I mean, it, it's his job, so sometimes you have to do things because that's that's your job and you try things that don't work, or whether, or better, which one of these were actively trying to, okay, I'll try this thing, and maybe it didn't work, but I was trying something radically new, and what instead was, well, they needed a game design, they they had this theme, or they had this art, and we had to make something happen, like the Dilbert board game, right? But I think it's a little bit of both. And, and it would be nice to see, oh, maybe in this game, this tiny thing, everything else was lost to the years, but this tiny thing became the inspiration for this other mechanism later on. Yeah. So... 2009, uh, I think it's very important for two reasons. Warhammer Invasion is another one of these big IP and designing alone. is another one, another LCG that he designed alone is the lead designer. I think it's a very cute LCG. Well, cute. It has orcs and monsters slaying <laughs> each other. So maybe cute is not the best word. But it has some interesting mechanism where... Remember when we did the episode on multi-use cards? Mm -hmm. So you basically have units like Orc Warriors and Dwarven Cannons and all of that from the Warhammer world. 
but you can play them as attackers and defenders in different areas. But there are also two areas of the board where you can pay and deploy your cards that become, on one side, they generate resources, and on the other end, they generate cards for you. So when you play a card, you have to decide whether these will be your attackers to try and destroy the other player you're trying to kill the castle. So very straightforward, trying to kill you with all of these special abilities, or whether you want to build your engine. So again, Mm. even if this is... And I have a bunch of packs for this game that we picked up at uh, Gen Con in one of those big used lots. But it has some interesting thing. Again, this is way, compared to the Call of Cthulhu, this is way closer to the magic style of I'm summoning my creatures and attacking you to try and destroy you. But he still tries to do something weird. Yeah. Yeah, it is really cool to see all these different completely different just mechanisms and and ways of handling player interaction i do feel like that even though we're saying these are all very 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 different games even at the base the core of his game design even dilbert (laughs) it seems to be very player interaction focused absolutely and and again the well, I think another thing that is being cemented by his working on so many LCGs is having asymmetric factions. Because that's something that it's obvious when people have, you have played way more Magic the Gathering than me, but even for people who have just heard of it, playing a green deck is very different from playing a blue-white deck, right? The oh, yeah. flavor of the different colors is a core part of the experience. And that's something that all of these LCGs want to bring to the table, right? In the Game of Thrones, playing Martell is very different than playing Lannister. And in Warhammer Invasion, playing the Orcs is trying to give you a very different vibe than playing the Elves. And I think that that was nothing new. All of the card games, collectible card games, even the failed ones from other designers do that. But I think that inspired a lot of his following work where now everything he does, whatever faction or character you play means a very different experience. Yeah. Speaking of that... Chaos in the old world. I know people that still swear that that's Eric's best game. Nothing has come close. It's their favorite game. It's their precious grail game. And... Have you played it? uh, Yes. And it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) It was... Fine. It's still very highly ranked. Yes. So first of all, it is famous also for reasons that have nothing to do with the gameplay. So it's set in the Warhammer world, but you're playing the Demon Lords. And so the game is really in your face in terms of graphics. If you can look at the image of the board, it shows that the map is drawn on human skin. Oh, yeah, I see that. And so that I remember not not seeing reviews when it came out, but shortly after that focused a lot on that with people saying, well, that's not the game that I want to play with my family. Someone say, oh, you shouldn't exclude the game for it. And so that became part of the discussion, I think, more than it deserves. Also, because while I don't particularly like the theme of, oh, you are this horrendous monster that plays on human skin if no one told me that that was a human skin i have no way to know sure they 
painted the map on some canvas canvas exactly so i think that's a little artificial so for its time it was innovative it had it was a board game with radically different uh, not only powers of the different units but therefore what we were doing everyone had access more or less to the same actions but you would do it considerably different and the there were different victory conditions that everyone had access to but someone was more prone to one or the other. You could win through having a lot of territories. You can win through having a lot of points or there is a kind of a timer. You can see it on the top left of the board. The cool thing was that every faction played very differently. Mm -hmm. There are some worries about balance, but my problem was not that because I played it, I think, once. So... It was definitely not a matter of, oh, the same god always wins because I played it once. But it mm-hmm. was more that you felt, I felt at least, that the, I was channeled toward one strategy because the powers and the cards and the units and the special goals were so different uh, for each faction. Oh, yeah, that's very cool, but now I have to do this. If I am stronger than others at, fighting unit versus unit. I get more points if I conquer and I'm faster at moving. Moving around and conquering will be what I do. Right. Vice versa, if I am the only one who can get points by playing card and I have an easier time accumulating mana to play the cards and I can draw more cards, guess what? I will focus on the cards. And so what makes these kind of games interesting to me that is, oh, how am I supposed to use this special advantage and this special focus that I have was so in your face that made it very, very thematic. It's incredibly charming if you are into disgusting horror job. (laughs) But at the same time, it felt restrictive to me. I don't know if it makes sense, if I can... Do you get what what I mean? Yeah, no. So what I what I'm gathering is that it took a lot of the strategy out of your hands and put it into the player power. So it basically forced you, which is what we've talked about in the past about having issues with pl- variable player powers in euros, is that it kind of gives you this tunnel vision of you have to play to your advantage that is given to you because otherwise you're wasting the advantage and other players who might make better use of their advantage are going to get ahead of you. My impression, I guess, is that this game may have been the predecessor for Blood Rage. It may have helped him like think of the different strategies and things like that. But in Blood Rage, he took the variable player powers, the variability between players and put them into the card so you could draft them instead of being forced into one so you can instead willfully pick and go down a specific path yes versus being forced into i have to do this yeah i absolutely agree i think that i want to be clear i'm not saying that there is no skill in playing chaos of in the old world i'm sure that if we were to play against experienced player they will destroy us because (laughs) even if you know which strategy you're going for executing that specific strategy is 
certainly a matter of timing of playing the right cards. I'm not saying that there's a, a railroaded game. It's just that what you were saying is exactly the point. In Blood Rage, you are crafting your strengths. And even in Rising Sun, you have a certain degree of what you're good at, but that you still have to do all all of it, right? Yeah. Sure, you can move faster, but if you don't are not ready to fight or you're not ready to to control certain territories, it gives you nothing. While here, I remember the player playing Corn, who is the Blood God, was focus on fighting and all of that and then the player playing slanesh was corrupting so it's very thematic i don't remember anymore but when i was younger i used to play warhammer a lot and so i knew what these flavor of the gods were but then i also felt that oh you don't want to go fight the guy who's the blood god because you will lose every time and you don't want to get into a corruption battle with the guy who corrupts because that's what they're gonna do so you were more outmaneuvering around the other players rather than in your face which i think is what later work of his do better i must say though that even by reminishing this it is unique because some of this oh you have to engage the other players away from what they are strong in is something that is not as prominent in his later design. So I can understand why for some people Chaos in the Old World could be the pinnacle of his design. It's certainly not for me, though. I mean, it's definitely a turning point in his design, I feel like. Yep. Because it has what we expect now from Eric Lang games, which are minis, huge player interaction, very thematic, on a board vying for control so yeah i think if at the very least we can say that it's definitely a turning point where he started to focus more on these games with all of those elements absolutely absolutely so then 2011 is quarriers have you seen quarriers no so i i don't know if you would like it more than me because it's 100% 100% dice game. It brings together what we have said so far that is working on these 1v1 card games where you have different factions. And it brings it together with dice and with basically deck building, although obviously it's not a deck, it's a dice bag. So Quarters, which then went on to become all of the Dice Master line, is a game where you... You build your deck, basically your series of cards that explain you how your different dice work. They are custom dice. They have some faces that give you currency, basically, and some others that become units. So you draw a few dice from your bag. You roll them. If you roll the currency, you can acquire more dice that go into your bag. And if you instead roll the units, you use the units to attack the other player. Hmm. I didn't like it. However, not only it was very successful on its own, but it spawned all of the then more thematic Marvel Dice Master and D&D Dice Master and DC Dice Masters. I think there is even a WWE Dice Masters. <laughs> so you, you have. And so I didn't play it enough to know what I didn't like about it. So maybe it was the 
over-reliance on dice. So I know that you like dice more than me, so you might want to give it a try. But wait, wait, wait. Not only do I like dice more than you, but the dice like me more than you. Well, you deserve it, right? It's, it's <laughs> a give and take. It's a give and take. They, they, they reward love. Uh, how can yeah. you blame that? <laughs> it, it, one thing that I really liked was the idea of custom dice, which, as you know, I really like. Mm-hmm. But then there were sad little dice because they have to produce a lot of them. And right. Quarriors was distributed as a regular game, but then what really became successful, and I'm jumping ahead, but it was in 2014, Marvel Dice Master, and 2015, the other Dice Masters, is that they sold them in very little booster packs in which you would find, I don't know, if one or two dice and the corresponding card. And so you were looking for the right die. And so it brought back that collectible card feeling but the booster packs were like $1. So you buy a $1 booster pack and it has two dice and two cards or two cards and one die, whatever. And so you're trying to find your, your things. So That's cool. it, it is. And again, it's taking something very common. Oh, a collectible card game and different power, etc., and completely flipping it on its head by adding the dice, and therefore the you're, you cannot rely on, oh, I have this hand, what I'm going to do now, but you have to roll the dice, see what happens, and also being attentive to the new trends, because Dominion came out, I think, two years earlier, and clearly Quarius incorporates some of the ideas of Dominion in, in you're not building your deck, you're building the, your dice bag, but it, it was mm-hmm. 2008. Very current, very attentive to what's going on in the gaming world and trying to always at least explore the new mechanisms. Yeah. It's always clearly in the middle of is now working on all of these ongoing ongoing properties because at this point it was working on a Game of Thrones, the card game, Call of Cthulhu, the card game, Warhammer Invasion, and Quarriors itself was not a collectible game, but it had a lot of expansions. So it was, in a way, uh, an L DG and Living Dice game. Um, living Dice game. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know if, if you would like it, but I think you if you find one of the many incarnations, whether it's Quarriors or one of the Dice Master, you should give it a try. You might like it way more than I did. Yeah. I would play it. It looks interesting. And with that, we get to one that is, for me, in the run for his best game. It's very hard for me to compare it to... And that's Star Wars, the card game. And it's very hard for me to compare it to things like Blood Rage and Rising Sun for so many reasons. First, the fact that a card game is very different than, than obviously an area control game, but also that Star Wars the card game is not a self-contained, you get this game and you play it. It had a six-year run with bi-monthly packs. It was an expandable card game with the possibility, but also the, the heaviness of exploring each faction in painstaking detail with producing thousands of cards and 
like in all of those games, some are, are great, some are not. And so while in a board game, it's more clear than that's what the experience is. Here, it depends on who you're playing with, whether you're playing it competitively or for fun, whether you are keeping current with the expansions, uh, whether you are considering the entirety and each card of the game or just, oh, here are the, the decks that I really like and how it plays. So it's very hard for me to compare, but I think it's an amazing design. It has so many innovative ideas. So at its core, it's a 1v1 game where you are trying to defeat the opponent and you have different factions. But first, it's, insofar as I know, the first game of this kind that is asymmetric. So one player wins by destroying the other player's objectives and the other player wins by letting the clock run out. And they can speed the clock up. The, basically, the, the, it's it's the Star Wars word. And you build the deck. And if you were going into a tournament, you would bring a light side deck and a dark side deck. You cannot mix cards from the two. And I play... If I'm playing the dark side, I'm trying to get the Dead Star to reach its end timer. If you are the light side, you're trying to destroy my objectives. And it has so many innovative um, details and again, beside the fact that I really like it, which I do, there is also an, an intention of not simply rehashing tropes in the genre. For example, both the Cthulhu card game and uh, a Game of Thrones card game had basically tapping, uh, like in Magic. They couldn't mm -hmm. call it tapping because it's a patented term. Is it really? Yeah. In uh, Game of Thrones, the card game, it's called kneeling. Because the word tapping applied to cards is a patented trademark of Wizards of the Coast. Wow. Yeah. And that's why you find in a lot of fantasy fight games, you find the word exhaust, which is tapping. Yep. Yep. Star Wars the card game uses focus, which is not just a different term, but it's a physical token that you put on the card that does the same. You cannot use the card. The card is inactive. But the fact that there are tokens, it means that you can be multi-tapped. And so, especially in the interaction with resources, in introduces a resource management thing where you have to decide, do I want to spend a lot of resources this round and then be cash-trapped the next round? Or do I want to keep only what I can spend and having the same element next time? There are other ways to... Much like in Magic, there are ways to tap other creatures before they activate. This way, that becomes a multi-turn thing. But also, and it goes back to something that apparently he likes a lot, cards that can be used in different ways. It was in Warhammer Invasion, and it is in Star Wars the card game. You want to use your units to fight the other units and kill the other units and all of that jazz. But you also use those same cards to control the force, which is not a very thematic mechanism. People have complained about it a lot, but is dealing with the timer of the game. So you're trying to have a, a side resource game to, to determine how fast the game is going and therefore who has the advantage. And when you fight, cards strike in initiative order, so they are non-strike all at the same time as it is often the case in these games. And to determine that, you use cards from your hand. 
But I think what I like the most compared to all of the other games that try to move away from the father of all collectible card games, Magic the Gathering, obviously, is that you draw back to your hand size every round. And I think that's a small rule to explain, but it completely changes the nature of a card game. Mm-hmm. Because it takes away the card drawing advantage, it forces you to use all that you have every turn in the most efficient way. And I I really, really like it. I do recognize its flaws. Not only it is a very complex game to explain, but it is also a very complex baseline. So it has a complex system on top of which you build all of the complexity of the cards, which is what makes me makes it my favorite card game and amongst my favorite games overall, but at the same time is not as friendly to the, the casual card player. You can teach and play a Magic the Gathering game in, what, 20 minutes? Yeah. This will probably take more than 20 minutes just to explain the basic rules of the game before reading any text on any of the cards. Yeah. And the other thing that pairs weirdly with that, and again, for me, it was the perfect storm, but one thing that I don't love in collectible card games is building the decks. For me, it's a little boring. I I am a board gamer at heart, so I want to get into the game and play it. But Star Wars The Card Game builds decks with sets. Like you put together for a 60-card deck, you put together 10 sets of six cards, which allows them to have overpowered cards. Basically, don't need to balance the cost or, well, the, the goal was not necessarily to balance the cost, was to balance the set. So uh, Darth Vader is strictly better than other units, but his set comes with weaker support units, while there are other sets that are middle of the way. And so am I going for one strong card and five supporting cards, or maybe I'm getting two or three cards that are a little less powerful, but that don't are not as diluted and so while i really like the choices that that brought for a competitive scene the fact of not being able to customize your deck to the single card was a drawback for a lot of competitive players yeah it's very limiting in the sense that like yes it can be something that I mean, it can it can come down to where you and someone else have the exact same deck. Yeah, because you have 10 choices rather than 60, right? And also for redundancy, that means that you probably have 5 or 6 choices rather than 30. So it, it really becomes tricky from that point of view. This said, I really like it. The art is fantastic because they decided not to go with stills from the movies, but to go with actual art from Fantasy Flight people so and my question to you is do you think that this game sort of inspired star wars rebellion i don't think so i think it simply fell into the line of on that regard i think this was the beginning of a problematic trend for fantasy flight that 
went away from doing basically anything that is not IP related. I really like Star Wars, so I don't mind them publishing Star Wars card, uh, Star Wars board games. But this was in that period where the, everything else seemed to disappear. Now, Fantasy Flight is only doing Lord of the Rings game and Star Wars game and all of very strong IP games. But no, it's it's very different. If it's close to anything, but not really, is Star Wars Destiny. That was a straight-up collectible card game. But no, there are no mechanisms that... Well, I guess the fact that they went asymmetric. Yeah. Is, but Star Wars Rebellion has a lot of deception and area... Con- well, controlling areas... And it's more even, it is way more asymmetric. Here, you are still trying to dominate the board with your units and having the right um, events in hand and all of that. While Star Wars Rebellion, you have to play a completely different game when when you play. So, no, I, I, I actually think that Star Wars Rebellion clearly brings the Cody Cognizia style, which is almost the opposite of Eric Lang going to the core of the mechanism. Uh, Corey goes through very complex rules interaction to really bring out the theme while clearly Eric starts with a clear idea of what it wants to do mechanism-wise. And that's difficult. Yeah, I guess it's probably more that just Star Wars, the theme itself lends itself to asymmetric feeling. Like, that the games are have asymmetric natures to them because of the very nature of Star Wars. Yeah, I I 100% agree because all of the story is about how it's very different to be the great evil empire of the small group of rebel rebellion right. fighters and yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I liked that game. I just remember though that you like completely slaughtered me because you have played it for years and years and years, and I had played it the once. <laughs> I again, I think that that's not certainly the the complexity that I was talking about plays into that knowing the stuff. But I also think that's an unfortunate truth of any of these collectible card games. Whenever I play with my friends at home, Magic: The Gathering, which is a game I know the rules to and I have played for many years way back in the past, unless they decide to go with the quonky deck or just flat out, I don't know, let me win, which they don't, luckily, I have no chance because there is so much stuff in this game, so many effects, so many counters that you cannot, even if you want to give some pointers, you cannot explain everything. And knowing what can happen in the game. Oh, there is an event that does that? It's something that you can only know if you play often, right? And so I don't think it was a flaw specifically of this game, but it is a, a, a problem with all of the And that's why a lot of these games reset, right? And they do, oh, you can only use cards from the last two years. Yeah. 2013 was, to me, a very uninspiring year for Lang. So he did the Lord of the Ring dice building game, which builds upon Quarriors 
I think has the same problems without any of the innovative strands. Um, so it's, oh, you had this idea? Well, come to us and we'll give you the IP and you can try to sell it through the IP. Um, it didn't go anywhere. Trains and stations, I didn't like it, but it goes again to show that he tries to do something different. Have you seen Trains and Stations? No. I'm looking at it right now. Dice. Yeah, it was actually... I didn't mind it. I like playing it, but... It's from Wizkid. Yeah, but it has... I feel no reason to to exist. Um, Meaning (coughs) that if you like train games, you are probably more into the planning your route development and not simply rolling the dice and reacting to them. And if instead you're looking for something to react to with dice rolling, probably where you can build your route is not what you're looking for. I don't know if it makes sense, but I I am very curious what audience they had in mind. It is probably is with the exception of those weird things at the very beginning of his career, I would guess is his most poorly received game of modern times is five, a 5.8 on BGG with 800 ratings. So not, oh, 20 people tried it and it happens that it's a low rank. It had this thing where you roll the dice and the dice tell you whether you have money to buy the stuff or the, the resources to build your stations or move your trains and expand your route. But again, the mismatch between the very planable route expansion of a train game and the dynamic nature of a dice game meant that it was neither one nor the other. So maybe it was his trying to like take the ideas of quarriers and sort of make it into a a different kind of game trying to build off of the success of quarriers i would imagine so because the kind of engraved dice not the symbols but the the feeling of the dice is exactly the same but yeah not not a hit with me and not many apparently Fair enough. For once, it's not just me not appreciate, <laughs> appreciating the genius. And then there was a game that I saw this morning when I was putting together the list, but I had I I couldn't understand what it was about. It is this the Hobbit, an unexpected journey. Okay, but not that. That's a game by Ryan and Nizia, and it's. Uh, Journey to the Lonely Mountain strategy game is the one by Eric Lang for Wits Kids again. And I have no idea what's going on. It's a game about the movies that came out in that period. I don't know if you can figure out more about it, but it has, again, your favorite mechanism not available. None. Yeah, which, as you were saying before, I think it speaks to what the the goal of this game was. Uh, it is, we need to put out a game because the movie is coming out. Yeah. And again, I'm not blaming anyone. Which kids needs to sell games. Eric Lang's job is to design games. And so if they tell you design a game about this, but it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. I never heard it mentioned. I actually have I'd never heard about it. 
this as not only a very low rating, but also there are 45 ratings for it on BGG. So it's it probably went nowhere. I mean, there's some for sale on the geek market for $14. So, I mean, I feel like we should just buy it. Go ahead. I will play it with you if you teach it to me. Actually, it. I'm surprised because by looking strictly at the components, it doesn't look that sad of a game. The board is sad. The board is sad, but... Yeah, the cards are also sad. Right. Yeah, everything looks sad. I, 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 I recognize <laughs> the error in my trying to be nice. Uh, the minis are very plastic, very wix, wix kid, but they're pre pre-painted. Yeah, that was their their style. Well, Mage Knight, which is a much better game, um, comes with pre-painted miniatures. I think it's the hero clicks, hero click style. Yeah. Well, so 2013 was definitely not my favorite Eric Klang period, I would say. No, I'm I'm guessing not. But after that, it's basically an explosion. From now on, everything every year has at least one major hit, at least something that I have played, and I'm sure at least one big selling game. Yeah. So I think that the Star Wars The Car Game, which again I like but wasn't a great success, is the last one of that. He's working with other people, he's working with different companies, making his name. With 2014 and onwards, he rises to what's arguably one of what the top five designers on the market right now, uh, a name that can drive sales on its own, that companies fight over to hire. And I think that starts in 2014. So have you played these 2014 games? So I didn't play Chaos, Chaos Bowl? Chaos Bowl? Um, okay. It's uh, in the Blood Bowl theme of a violent fantasy sport. It didn't seem to have a great following. It looks like just another game in that vein. I have played, well, Two of the other three. One is Marvel Dice Master, which again is the thematic version of Quarriors. Is taking this idea of Quarriors, streamlining it to just two players a little faster, and instead of having these generic monsters, you uh, I use Hulk and you use Iron Man, and my Hulk attacks your Iron Man and all of that. So uh, a re but reimagining of Quarriors, Arcadia Quest and Warhammer Conquest. I played both. So Warhammer 40k Conquest was a card game, another LCG that was very short-lived for licensing reasons that had a lot of very innovative mechanisms. You were playing over different scenes, basically, in the same game. You had a line of seven planets and you could compete for different ones. So we're not only choosing which units and events and all of that to play, but also where to play it. So if I go in on one what it's called, on one planet, are you going to come and con uh, contrast me on that planet or are you taking your losses there and investing resources elsewhere? I really liked it. I never got into it also because it died quite quickly, so I don't own it. But I I was tweeting to Eric recently and I 
didn't get an answer. He gets million tweets. But I'm curious to know whether the design elements of that game went anywhere because I really, really like them. Mm-hmm. And have you seen or played Arcadia Quest? Um, I'm looking at it right now. I don't know much about it at all. So Arcadia Quest is a game that I think I would own if it weren't for Kickstarter. It was certainly not the early, the, the first Simon Kickstarter or anything like that. But for me personally, it was the first time where I played the game, I liked it, and then I looked at the core game, the retail game, whatever it is, and realized, oh, but this version it has so fewer things than than my my friend's copy has, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was sad. That was very sad for me. So it's a game that I think you would like. It, it It's not a cop. I know that it has that style that is has become common in some in some of Simon games in various cops, but it's a player versus player game in which you're trying to kill monsters, kill some of your opponents, but you want to kill heroes from different opponents because the first time I I kill one of your heroes, I get a point, but then if I kill another one of your heroes, I don't get a point. So I want to kill one of your heroes and one of another player's heroes at the table and play one big monster. And it's very quick, very fast. It's one of those games where there are hundreds or probably not hundreds, but dozens and dozens of heroes if you play with the Kickstarter edition and like eight if you buy it in the store. Oh, and so I really felt the oh, I'm getting a portion of the game, and I know it's not rational because you could probably play the game 20 times, and that man means oh, you have used the same hero twice, big deal. Although you play with three heroes every time, and something like that, but but it's very cute, it's in a chibi style. I really like it. It's also probably a little light. I don't know. It it would have become my favorite game anyhow. But it has gone off to be a great success. They released other big campaigns for it. Uh, recently, last year was uh, which is coming out this year. Starkidia Quest, so the the science fiction version, and. It was the first one that I noticed while it was still on Kickstarter, but I didn't like the science fiction team as much, so I never, I never got in there, basically. So we've talked a little bit about Eric Lang, the designer, his repertoire from 2000 all the way to 2014. 2015 to, to, to the present is... There's so much to talk about. So we don't want to rush through it. We don't want to shortchange it because that is where the meat of our experience is because we've played those games multiple times at length and we really want to, you know, give them the focus that they deserve. So why don't we wrap it up here for today and we will continue this on our next episode. Yes, I totally agree. There is so much to talk about, not only because it is stepped up is production rhythm but also because a lot of those are very interesting very successful very famous and deep games 
So um, I guess thank you for listening to our episode 17. Come back for episode 18 next week where we finish our discussion of Eric Lang and we select our favorites, although I, I feel like you can imagine which ones they are already. <laughs> Remember to uh, subscribe if you don't want to miss out on the on the episodes, sometimes we are a little slow. I'm a little slow at releasing them on Board Game Geek or Facebook and things like that. But they always update on uh, the different distribution system: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and whatever else. And remember, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or via email. Always at Board Game Gambit. The email is boardgamegambit at gmail.com. But you are also on Instagram and Facebook under that board game gambit um, nickname and as usual thank you for listening thank you for your feedback let us know what you think of eric lang's games especially for these episodes of his early early and maybe less famous stuff maybe you have played the dilbert the board game and we are wrong and it's the best <laughs> game ever i would be very curious about that but thank you for listening i'm jackie and i'm nathan Bye-bye.